Jesus says that the eye is the lamp of the body. And if the eye is good, then the whole body's good. The Bible talks quite a bit about eyes as a metaphor for how we perceive the whole world. In Matthew 13, Jesus talks about, quoting Isaiah, those who have eyes to see but can't perceive, lest they should turn and be healed. And he, but he says, blessed are your eyes because they do see to his disciples. We have different eyes to see what matters most. And one of the ways we can see things through faith that our physical eyes can't see is through the stories in Scripture. All of these stories about people who did witness these things. And as we sang, we didn't see these things, but we believe. We believe that human eyes saw as Jesus hung on the cross, that human eyes saw an empty tomb that human eyes watched him ascend into heaven. I talk for a moment about what Mary Magdalene saw. Mary lived in a very different world than, than we do. The first thing you got to know about Mary is she was a woman in first century Palestine, which puts some obstacles and challenges in front of her that none of us will experience. But then, the second thing that the Bible reveals to us about her in Luke 8, 1 through 3, is that she was possessed at some point in her life of seven demons who entered her. There might be times in your life when you felt like you were out of control. You, you didn't even feel like you had control of your own body, your own choices. But you have never felt that like Mary felt that. I don't know what she looked like, what her life and her relationships were like in that period. But if, if the demoniac from the Gerasenes is any, any indication, then she might have been cutting herself. She might have been acting crazy. She might have been in complete isolation. But Jesus came. And he had the power to cast out those demons. And he changed her life. And from then on, we read there in Luke 8 that she became one of these women that support Jesus out of her own resources and follow him everywhere he goes. Imagine what her eyes saw in that time. Watching Jesus just interact with people. Drinking in every word of his teaching. Taking in all that he does. Every interaction with you, but also with anybody else. To see perfection of holiness and of love. To see that power at work in Jesus. But then we, we find that she came with him as he made his last trip to Jerusalem. And in fact, we read that she was at a distance with a group of disciples watching as he was crucified. Later on, she talks with devotion about 
her Rabboni and her Lord. What would it have been like to have watched your Rabboni, your Lord, the one you loved with your whole heart and all of your gratitude as people try to strip his dignity as they strip his clothes off and then fight over them until four soldiers decide to split them up and then with that last one-piece tunic, they play a game of dice to see who wins. I don't know if she was close enough to read the mocking sign in three languages, King of the Jews, that hung above him. Or to hear a cry. Did she wince with every blow, every strike of the bloody whip as he was flogged in his back, as a crown of thorns was placed on him? She was there to witness when the the whole tragedy was finally over. In fact, so much would seem to be over as he cried, it is finished. We read in John 19 all of these awful things that were done to Jesus, and we read that Mary Magdalene was among those watching. We read in Luke that Mary Magdalene, along with Jesus' mother and some other women, also went to see and watched as some men took his body away, pulled it off of that cross. Just a corpse. Took it to a burial place. They tailed him and watched where these men took the body. And they made a mental note so that after the Sabbath, they could come back. It was getting late. It was Friday. And so they saw where he was laid, and they wanted to grieve him properly, to treat him with some tiny portion of the honor he deserved. That's where the story picks up in John 20 and verse 1. If you'd like, you can read with me where it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Why would somebody do this? Isn't it enough that you killed him for nothing? So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, all of the funeral dressings, all of the things that he'd been wrapped in, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but for some reason, 
folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. We're going to find out at the end of this book that this is the disciple who's writing these things to us here. He saw. And because he saw, he believed. Seems he understood some things that Jesus was saying before. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must write from that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary couldn't leave. She stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Just hear her voice. They have taken my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? It's interesting, the first words of Jesus in the Gospel of John are to his disciples when he asks, What are you seeking? And here, some of the last words in the book, he asks her, Who are you seeking? What are you looking for? Who are you looking for? What do you want? What are you chasing? Who are you looking for? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, the teacher's here. How is the teacher here? How is the teacher here? I watched it. I saw the whole horror show. And I watched them take this body here. And there was no life in that body. She'd been grieving, surely, all of the Sabbath, trying to process it all. And now here he stands, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. She, and maybe you or I would do this too, is gripping him so tightly and so long that he has to tell her, just let go. Let go. You need to go. And tell the others. Maybe there's an implication. I'm, I'm not ready yet to ascend to my father. I'm going to be here a little bit longer. And maybe there's more to it than that. Maybe John is recording this as a message to all of us. Maybe Jesus said this as a message to all of us. Not, we, we find him. And we want to hold on to him. And that's not the worst place to be. But we can't keep him to ourselves. And so 
Jesus says, you got to let go of me and go tell everybody else that I'm risen. And it says, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord of glory, the risen one, after all that has happened. She beheld things that we can't behold through our fleshly eyes. But when we see through faith what Mary saw in the flesh, it changes how we see everything else. A few verses later in this chapter, there's an incident with Thomas, and Thomas is able to believe when he touches. But then Jesus, speaking to Thomas, gives a blessing to the people in this room. He says, Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Peter says later in 1 Peter 1, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Sometimes they say seeing is believing. I'll believe it when I see it. Seeing isn't believing. What scripture teaches us is that believing is seeing reality. If we want to see things as they actually are, we have to see through the eyes of faith. We can only see so much with our eyes. If we want to see what's really happening in this world, if we want to see one another as we should, if we want to see our own condition as it really is, we have to hear through faith what the Bible says and receive it and see that. And once we do, we'll treat people differently. We'll have hope where it seems like there should be no reason for hope. And we'll find ourselves turning away from the things that may appeal to us otherwise and drawing ourselves to this one who died for us and is risen. The risen Jesus shows us something that we won't see with our eyes otherwise. He shows us that the impossible is possible through him. There's a moment in the Olympic history. I, uh, I know some of you hockey fans like, uh, like Kevin will remember this moment. I think it was in the 1980s Olympics when Al Michael said, Do you believe in miracles? I believe in miracles. I believe in miracles bigger than an underdog winning a hockey game. I believe in miracles. I believe in the miracle of Jesus risen from the dead that brings all of the other power into our lives in his church because the power that Christ wants you to have right now is the resurrection power that he overcame death with. Paul says in Philippians 3.10 that he, he would give up anything 
have to know the power, Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays this beautiful prayer for believers, saying in, in verses 18 to 20, that we might have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. Our eyes enlightened. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? We know Jesus is powerful. He just declared it in that event. But his power is toward us who who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above every other power. That power through which a corpse was changed and Jesus took on life in a body, a changed body, but a body that could be touched, a body that could, could eat breakfast with them. The power that let Jesus Christ overcome sin and death and then ascend to heaven and reign over everything is the power that God wants you to know is at work within you. Resurrection power. New life power. A couple, of, about a chapter later, in, in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, To him who can do abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in Christ Jesus. I don't know if you've ever felt stuck in your patterns, in your past, in your failures. Jesus wants us to understand that not because we're so strong, but through him, through his power at work in us, through the change that can be wrought in us when we die to ourselves and live through him. Who we were, whatever the past is, whatever this morning was for you, is not what has to define your path and your destiny. You might feel dead inside. You might look at, at your sin, look at your guilt, look at your broken relationships, look at something in you that you know is not alive in the way that Christ wants to make you alive. And you might feel hopeless because of it. You might feel a bleakness if you're really honest with yourself about where you sit in in some of these things. I mean, I hope not. But if you do, there is still hope. Because Mary Magdalene 
was completely hopeless. Everything that she thought gave her life meaning was crushed on a cross. And a day and a half later, there he was, more glorious than ever. But we also have in Christ a new food to eat. Food is a big deal in life, obviously. It's a, it's a fundamental part of being human. That's why I think it's so important in Scripture. They say, you are what you eat. And the Bible makes it clear that spiritually speaking, that is 100% true. We talk all the time outside the Bible about this kind of metaphor. We talk about, um, you know, devouring a book or, you know, savoring a, a song. We talk about, you know, grandparents, kind of weird, but might talk about looking at their grandbabies and saying, I want to eat you up. <laughs> talk about the things that we take in and make a part of ourselves. Eating is the perfect way of talking about that. You know, it wasn't looking at the fruit that condemned Adam and Eve. It was taking and eating that wrong fruit rather than taking and eating the fruit that would give them life. Throughout Scripture, throughout the the days of Israel's wandering... They ate food from heaven, manna, but God warned them, you won't live by bread alone. And Jesus says, here's my food, and John 4 is to do the will of the one who sent me. There's this really strange passage in John 6 about what we eat. Jesus takes all of this and he says, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Look with me at John chapter 6, beginning in verse 47. Jesus says something really challenging. And I suggest it's intentionally challenging. It's meant to be disturbing to you. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Keep that in mind because that's the key to what comes after this. What is going to give us life? And this phrase that he says, I am the bread of life. Your father ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that everyone who eats of it may not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so the Jews dispersed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. 
This isn't talking about the Lord's Supper. This is talking about something more challenging than just taking the bread and the fruit of the vine that we're, we're going to in a few minutes, as important as that is. But it points to the same reality that the Lord's Supper points to. Jesus is pointing us to who he is and to the importance of receiving him and his sacrifice. When Jesus says to eat his flesh, it shocks us with a painful truth. We must partake of Christ and his awful sacrifice for our awful sins. This is all taking place at the Passover time, according to chapter 6, verse 4. And there seems to be a Passover picture here. Jesus is the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist stated. And, and the Passover lamb was sacrificed for the people. Remember that first sacrificial Passover lamb? The blood went across the doorposts, and it saved their firstborn life rather than death, because that lamb was sacrificed, and then they ate it. In fact, they ate a lot of their sacrifices, portions of them, the, the, the fellowship, the peace offerings as well. There's, a, there's an old joke um, about who gave up more when you eat ham and eggs. You know, the chicken gave up the eggs, but the, the pig gave everything. And when we think about a Passover lamb, the Passover lamb gives everything for you, whoever is taking the Passover. And then you eat it. You make it a part of you. Again, even beyond the cannibalism picture, it's a disturbing picture. And Jesus knew exactly what he was doing as half the crowd, most of the crowds leave. But he wants to get across something more than just shocking and and sending some people away. Until we see how awful it is that Jesus gave everything for us because we had to have it, we won't understand what it means to receive Jesus and make him and his sacrifice part of who we are. And so at another Passover, of course, which is Passover season right now, Another Passover, after this, at the end of the book of John, or at the end of the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus instituted another feast. He instituted the Lord's Supper that points us to these very truths. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I'll invite you to take out the emblems. If you haven't gotten any, um, you can raise your hand if, if you need someone to bring you the bread and the fruit of the vine. We take of the bread here in a moment. We want to do it proclaiming his death remembering all that he is, his eternal existence, his life, his perfect life, 
his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension and his reign today before someday he comes to judge all the earth and reign forever. We proclaim his death and we remember the body that was sacrificed for us as we take this. Let's go to God in prayer. Holy God, our Father, we thank you for what you gave for us. We thank you for what Jesus gave for us. We thank you for the beauty that we can see in him, for the glory and the love that he showed towards us. We thank you for this bread that we're about to partake of in remembrance of him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And after the bread, Jesus took the cup and he blessed it. And we will go to God and give thanks for this cup now. Holy Father, thank you for this time of remembrance we share, this time of communion with Jesus, this time of sharing with one another. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that brought a new covenant where we can be your people forever and you will be our God. We thank you that through his offering, through his blood, we find peace with you, the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for that peace. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this cup. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. this time we'll have another song and then we're going to offer an invitation to anyone who hasn't yet received Jesus come to him in the way that he directs us to do so Aaron Aaron